Come on back and uh, grab your Bibles and uh, open up to the 20th chapter of the book of Luke. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And uh, you need a Bible? Anybody need a Bible? Grab one on the back table. Somebody, if you need a Bible, go there. If you don't, if you're in my family, sit down. <laughs> there we go. All right, good. It's <laughs> funny stuff. Not really. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. All right, 20th chapter of the book of Luke. Dr. Luke, a physician. Can you believe it? But not just a physician, a historian. If you don't believe me, just read the first chapter of Luke. He tells you how detailed he it is that he uh, searched these things out. He did as much as anybody in the ancient world to search out what the gospel was and the life of Jesus, and he put it down here. And what's really fascinating about the book of Luke, don't, don't ever forget this, the first four verses of the book of Luke are written in classical Greek. He knew classical Greek. Only the elite educated people knew classical Greek, and then the rest of the book, common Greek. Isn't that interesting? He was a companion of Paul, and uh, more than anyone, he emphasizes the humanity of Christ, and yet we're going to see today what the proper perspective or who, yeah, what the proper perspective is about who Christ is. He's not just man, he's fully God. He's fully God and he's fully man. We sing these kind of songs like King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We talk about it at Christmas. What, what is it to be a king? And then what is it to follow a king and to be under his authority? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And you have to remember, we're four days away or so, just a few days away from the death of Christ. And he knows it. And in John, lots of places in John, it tells us that the religious leaders had decided to kill him. So he, he marches in over the hill of Bethany. And what does he do in Bethany? He goes there and he meets his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that's the last place he stops there. And he gets an anointing, remember that. And he comes across to the Mount of Olives on a colt. And everybody would know a colt in Zechariah 9.9 was what the Messiah was to ride in on. And he rode into the hallelujahs and the hosannas. Come save us now, king. Because they were expecting that he would be the Messiah who would the first time, or be the Messiah who would overturn all the oppressors. What they didn't know is that Jesus is coming two times. The first time to save us from our sins, hallelujah. But he died and rose again, and now we live in the church age, but he is coming back to rule the nations. But that wasn't the first time, and so we talked about this at length. Don't put into your mind or have in your mind outside of the Word of God what Jesus must or should do for you. <laughs> that ain't the Bible, folks. It's what we do for him in response to all that he is, because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He came first as a lamb. His, his, his relative says, ah, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right there in John chapter 1, the Lamb of God. But he's coming again as the lion from the tribe of Judah. So here he is, and it appears to us when we first read this that maybe Jesus found himself in trouble. No, he didn't find himself in trouble. There was a certain day, we talked about that, that he had to ride into Jerusalem in chapter 19. That day was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. He fulfilled that day as he comes over the hill and he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps for her. And he says, you didn't know the day and you didn't know the time of your visitation. I wish you would have read your Bible, studied the scriptures so you would have known when I came over in a cult. And you're putting down the palms that you would have known this is the day that the Messiah rides into his city. But they didn't. They wasted the opportunities that were given to them. Oh boy. Now wait a minute. You might be sitting here and you're saying, well, I kind of like you know coming to church wherever it is you go to church. I like to feel good and click it off my list and check it off my list and I might put some money in the box and all that sort of thing, but I don't want to get too serious about this. Well, see, here's the thing, folks. Jesus never gives you that option. (laughs) I mean, he says some radical stuff. He doesn't say, hey, just say pray some prayer on the back of a magazine and all will be well. And by the way, I love the magazine and I use it to share with the gospel with people. No, he says something different. He says, I want you to take up the death penalty the cross, you, you take up the, the cross and put it on your back, which means you're never coming back. That's what you're, you're never coming back. You're not standing with one foot in, one foot out. You're all in for Jesus. You put the cross on your back all day, every day, and you're never coming back. It's this, this is, this is Christianity. You ready for it? His life for ours. It's the exchange life. It's his life for ours. We say, Lord, I give it all up to serve you because I know I deserve death and spiritual separation from you, and yet you have come to pay my penalty. You become the Lord and Savior of my life, my life for yours. That's where we find ourselves. He's accomplishing this as he rides over that hill, as he looks over Jerusalem, and now as he enters a different day and he marches right down to the temple, the epicenter of where God is. Remember the Shekinah glory resided in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And it's the epicenter of religiosity. Who here hates religiosity? I mean, I hate it, don't you? When somebody, when, when I act self-righteous, don't you just want to just crawl in a hole and just go, what am I doing? Have you ever met somebody that's self-righteous in the church? Oh, no, you never have. They're critical and blamey and a drag. And they divide churches. <laughs> Oh, it's so gross, isn't it? It's icky. I love that word. He goes right to the epicenter of religiosity, the place where all of uh, Israel is is centered around, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. And he goes and and he preaches, 
Systematically, I told you that. A systematic teaching of the scriptures. That's his few days away from death. What would you be doing? <laughs> he says, no, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep teach. I'm going to keep telling you the scriptures so that you'll know. And oh, by the way, I'm going to preach and proclaim the good news. A little different than the teaching word there. In the other Gospels, it says he actually was doing miraculous healings too. Can you imagine the audacity to do it right there in front of the custodians who wanted to kill him? Whew, what a scene, man. This is Shakespearean stuff. It's original. And here he is. He's preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes, follow with me now, will you? Together with the elders, they confront him. And they, speak, they spoke to him, and they said this, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, <laughs> Isn't it funny? It says he answered, but he asked a question. I also will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven, or was it from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So let's pray, and let's see why authority is so important. You with me? Let's pray. Well, Lord, uh, we do. We're searching out your scriptures, and we want to know. <laughs> authority. Is it something to run from, like good Americans, or to submit to, like Christ's followers? Lord, we just pray that you would make a difference in our lives by showing us who you are, what you've accomplished, and what you continue to do, and why your authority matters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Authority. Authority. Used for power, one uh, commentator has said, uh, the Greek word authority. It's used for the power that proves and reflects the sovereignty, the control of Jesus. A.T. Pearson said this, that Christ taught the scriptures to the people as if he was the author rather than the commentator. Jesus never had to say, like the rabbis of the time or the teachers of the time, Rabbi so-and-so, when we get to this scripture, says this about those scriptures. Jesus said, if you have an ear, let it, let it hear, because I'm the author. He never had to refer to anybody else. There was something about his teaching. It was authentic. It was deep. Why? Because it was coming from straight from heaven. People knew that he cared as they, he's telling them very difficult things. I'm convinced when he says things like to the self-righteous people, you're a brood of vipers, you're a bunch of snakes. We would have said it, or at least I would have, in a real attacking way. I'm convinced Jesus was shocking them like spiritual paddles on the chest to wake them up. Not to repel them, but to get them to pay attention. He taught the scriptures. He's the author rather than the commentator. There's all sorts of things involved in teaching. Don't you love it when you have a friend or a person that you meet 
And you know that they, that you know that they, that you know, uh, you know that you know that you know that, listen, listen, they don't know about Jesus, they know Jesus. And what's even better is not that they know Jesus, but they know the person that you love or are a friend with, they know that Jesus knows them. You catch what I'm saying? Somebody who spent time in the presence of the Lord, communing with the Lord, there's something about the radiance and the strength and the power and the meekness of people like that and the refreshing, uh, you know, how refreshing they are, how spiritually fruitful they are. They can say things that are very difficult, but they can say it in a loving way. You know what I'm talking about? And every time you walk away, even if they're challenging you on something, you walk away refreshed. See, that's the life that Jesus imparts to his followers. But a lot of us know about Jesus because we just read, 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 store, 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 robot, robot, robot. But that's not exactly what he's after. He's after you knowing him and, and more importantly, being known by him. Washed in his blood, loved, secure, stable, not in yourself, but in Christ. You're rooted and grounded and built up in his love. That's Ephesians 3. So that when criticism or, you know, this thing comes, the, the stuff that doesn't matter, it just sort of rolls off your back like water off a duck's back. Because you are known by the one. See, that's Jesus, and he imparts that life to us. He has authority. You know this, right? All throughout the book of John, you read about the authority that Jesus has been given. Who has he been given it by? By the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Isn't that incredible? Unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. That's in John 5. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own, Jesus said. I do nothing of my own will or initiative, but I speak the things as the Father shows me or teaches me. That's John 8. I do and say what the Father tells me to speak, John 12. I mean, it's over and over. He's been given authority by the Father. Does that make him lesser than the Father? Nope. (laughs) He came out of heaven, one God, three persons, out of heaven as a baby, grew up as a person, just like us. He wasn't Casper the ghost, folks. He had a real body. He was a real person. He felt, and he hurt, and he was tired, and he was sleepy, etc. And yet without sin, no sin. And yet he's God. The same in nature and essence as the Father. And it was his delight to do the will of the Father, and now that life can be imparted to us. Oh, wait a second, wait a minute. I used a bad word for Americans. Our will. Because I referred to it at the beginning. Remember, Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal people, people who walk according to the flesh but not according to the Spirit, are at war with God. There's hatred between them and God. They hate it. We hate it. We don't like to be told what to do. I'll just leave that there. 
We don't like to admit that we need a Savior. We like to do things like this. Well, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty nice. I've done some good things. I've helped some old ladies across the street in my life. I've done this, I've done that, and yet the Bible tells us that none of us are righteous, no, not one. We never measure up to God's standards. We need a Savior, man. We need his life, our life for his. So he goes there into the temple, and they want to know this authority because they see it and they recognize it, just like you do with your friend who refreshes you. What is it about that person? They don't just know about the Lord. They know the Lord, and he knows them. And the way they talk and the sweetness and yet the truth that comes out of their life, it has to be from the Lord. Yes, it is, because look where the Lord was like that. The people recognized it right there in the temple. They were like, whoa, wait a second. I know we don't like his agenda, but man, the way that this guy teaches, and he says back to them, as they ask him, what authority do you have? He says, hold on. This is just such a great lawyerly move. How do you learn? You learn by Socratic method, by thinking, not by looking it up on Google and spouting it off, filling in the blanks. You don't learn anything that way. Jesus wants you to come to the conclusions yourself, not by, through the pastor or grandma or grandpa or your mom or your dad, or your brother. He wants you to come to the conclusion. So he asks the question, hey, I'll ask you something. And this was something that was like a burr under their saddle, because John the Baptist caused the religious people headaches, man. He says, let me, let me ask you something, and you answer me. Do you understand Jesus was putting them on trial? He was bringing their lives to a head so that they had to make a decision, and they think they're killing him and putting him on trial? He's putting them on trial like he puts us on trial. He says, let me ask you something. If the baptism of John, John the Baptist... Was it from heaven or was it from men? Now listen, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for sins. But if you read all the Gospels around the time of John's baptism, I mean, what it says is, and I'm paraphrasing, it's a, it's a baptism for the repentance of sins. I think it also says it's an Acts, but it was looking forward to the time of Christ, when Christ would come and die for our sins and rise again. So... He was pointing to Christ, but Jesus says the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Was it divine? Was it authored by God? Was it authority from God? Was there authority there from God? And remember, Jesus said he was the greatest prophet of all time. They reasoned among themselves saying, hey, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, then why didn't you believe me? Listen, this is the internal clock or, you know, winding going on in their head. They're talking to each other. But if we say for men, all the people will stone us, for they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it was from. Do you see how disingenuous genuous the question is? They don't care about the answer. You get that? All they care about is tripping him up. Because if they cared about the answer, they would answer the question. And what is the answer? Well, remember at Jesus' baptism, what happened? Something miraculous. Don't ever forget it. This is my son, the heavens thunder. God himself spoke. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God the Father giving the authority to the son. Authorizing his ministry to us. 
This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's a baptism of repentance. Why? Because we have a sin nature. We are sinners by nature and by deed, and we need a new nature, and only Jesus can solve the problem. And God said, pay attention. This is the one, my son. It was from heaven, man. But because they weren't asking a question in a right manner. See, Jesus can handle, or God can handle the questions. You got questions for God? Perfect, ask them. But you know the people that come up to you and they ask the question, but they don't really want you, want you to answer. They're trying to trip you up. You know, you, you're, you're, you're talking to them, and you could see, you know, almost the shotgun come out, the spiritual shotgun. I'm going to ask you this question. I don't really want to know the answer. What I want to do is make you look like a fool. You can tell it by their tone and their bravado. You know what I mean? Look what Jesus did. Jesus said to them, well, then I'm not going to tell you what authority I do these things. You say, does that mean? Turn with me to John chapter 7. Jesus gives us a real amazing principle right here. Go to John chapter 7 and look in verse 14 to begin. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, verse 14 of chapter 7 of John, and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how did this man know letters or this man, no letters, having never studied. And Jesus answered and said to them, now pay attention to this, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Here's the principle. You want to know the principle? If we disobey truth, you're going to want to wake up here. I know I'm, yeah, right. I got it anyway. If you if we disobey truth, listen to this. That we already know. God can't deliver new truth to you or won't deliver new truth to you. Isn't that interesting? He just said it right there in John chapter 7. I'm going to uh, uh, reveal my will to you and if you when you obey, I'll pass on more truth to you. You see why James tells us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. You say, oh, great. I'm going to practice it today. Okay, great. I'll start you out. I'll give you, a, I'll give you one that we can all practice. You ready? Here he comes. Forgive. <laughs> I want you to think of somebody that's hurt you right now. And you've been holding on to it for years, or maybe you've been holding on to it for a week, or maybe you've been holding on to it for a day. I don't know what. But the Lord says, you forgive them. I believe forgiveness is possible for any of us in the context of our relationship with the Lord, for anything that somebody's done to us, when we recognize that vengeance is the Lord, we can forgive. Okay, that's one. Okay, that's one. Here, I'm going to get you all here, including myself, starting with myself. How about this one? You say, okay, I know this truth. Bless those who persecute you or revile you or hate you. Don't just tolerate people. Uh, actively go out and bless them, even the ones who hate you. In fact, 
you might be in a blue party or a green party or a red party, and in this economy, you can't even look at people in the, with the other color party. Not what Jesus said, folks. Do we, can we stand up and do our politics and do it right and be righteous? Of course. No one's saying you can do that. But we're not to hate. We're not to hate anybody. I always laugh when it says that Christians are the most intolerant people in the world. Well, I'm going to tell you something. The Bible tells me to tolerate everybody, just don't endorse everything that they do. But tolerate? Oh, come on in, man. Let's go to lunch. Come over to my house. So he says here, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things because you understand that these people weren't willing to obey what he was going to disclose, that he is the son of man, he is the son of God, and if he told these people, he knew, because Jesus knew what was in men, that they weren't interested. They just wanted to trip him up and kill him. He gives us truth and more truth as we obey it. Wow, isn't that convicting? It's convicting for me. So he goes on, and you think, well, is this even connected? Well, yeah, it is connected. He began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. Can you believe it? I mean, come on. He goes, I'm not going to tell you what it is, so I'll just give you a little parable. I'll throw a little truth alongside a story, and let's see if you can get it. A certain man planted a vineyard. Now, stop. Everybody that's listening to this knows what a vineyard is in Jewish history, Old Testament. You could go look it up in Isaiah 51, the first seven chapters, or Psalm 80. The vineyard is Israel. Totally Israel. He began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Are you like me when you start to read this thing, like you're the, you, you start to get heated? I do. I'm like, sheesh. I wouldn't put up with that if I was him. So you keep reading and you go, again, he sent another servant and they beat him also. They treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. They didn't just beat him. They treated him like dirt and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third and they wound him or wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, well, what shall I do? If, if I was owning the vineyard... That wouldn't have been my sentence. It would have been lights out. Pulled the plug. Do whatever I could have in my flesh to get those guys. He doesn't. He says, what shall I do? Ah, oh, hey, here's it. here it is. I'll send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, well, this is the heir. You're thinking, well, man, it's the air. They must come to their senses. Come, let us kill him. 
that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, this isn't hard to figure out when you know that the vineyard is the nation of Israel through Psalm 80, Isaiah 51, and other places. Who are these people? Well, the vine growers or the vine dressers, the religious rulers of Israel, the, the exact people he's talking to. Can you believe it? The religious rulers of Israel who were entrusted with shepherding Israel and the things of the Lord, who'd gotten wayward, who were the slaves. Or servants, who are the servants? They're the prophets of God. Clearly, they're the prophets of God. I'm not going to take you to there, but you could write these down. Jeremiah 25, 4 through 11. Jeremiah 7, 25. Ezekiel 38, 17. Daniel 9, 6 and 10. Amos 3 and Zechariah 1. Or and There's many others where God sent prophets. And i got to tell you, folks, in the mind of Americans or people who are just looking on humanly, the prophets weren't real successful in the eyes of people, but in the eyes of God, they were successful because they were faithful just to do what God said. But they didn't see a lot of movement here, a lot of coming back to the Lord, a lot of repentance, a lot of softening hearts. No, in fact, they beat up the prophets, did bad things to them, but God kept sending them. I wouldn't have done it. But see, God's patient. When you read this, think of how patient God is. I mean, I might have sent one prophet. He came back with a red face and torn clothes and hair plucked out or whatever. Beaten up, black eyes. I said, well, let's close up shop and go home. Not God. He kept sending them. He kept sending them. And then he said this. They're almost impossible to get through to. Here's what we'll do. I'll send my son. <sighs> wow. The son is, of course, our Lord, Jesus. The one who's actually speaking the parable. Are you catching that? And I wanted you to see something. Remember we talked about there's enmity with God? People who are at war with God outside of Christ. Listen, even religious people. For those who aren't in a vital, dynamic relation with Jesus... Maybe they, they may be the, the committee chair of all the committees in the church. They might give the most money. I don't know what they do. But the Bible tells us that before we're in Christ, we're at enmity with God. There's something between us, and one thing that is, is in there is, I don't want to be ruled. I object because I don't want you to rule over me. You might not say it that way, but that's what's going on, and it, it's, it causes unsettledness and hurt and anger and bitterness. Have God take you down a road that you didn't want to go when you're in that state and see what you say about God. You get what I'm saying? In, in your carnalness, in your flesh, it's down there. It's below the surface. You hate the person who loves or owns the vineyard. You forget that you're only a lessee, you've leased it. You're here, your life is not your own, folks. 
God's given you life. He's given you stuff. He's given you the rain to get food. He gives you a great intellect to get a job or, or whatever. I don't know. But we treat everything like it's ours. This is my car, man. This is my 401k. This is my salary. You don't tell me what to do with it. This is my family. This is my sex life. You don't tell me what to do with it, Lord. You might not say it that way, but that's what you say. Because we resent it. We don't want to be ruled over naturally in the flesh. And another thing that's amazing about this story that Jesus tells them, they're not killing him here because he claimed wrongfully that he had a right to the vineyard. They're killing him because they know he has the right to the vineyard. Did you get that? They recognize him as the heir. Let's kill him. He's the heir. <laughs> See, you know this, right? Go to any party. Go out in the world. Uh, go to a Christmas party with your friends. Talk about God. Everybody will be happy and chipper. Oh, yeah, that sounds so spiritual, wonderful. Oh, you like God, wonderful. And then you say the name of Jesus. It's like a pall comes over them. We could talk about some spiritual stuff here, but don't bring up Jesus is almost what they're saying, right? You ever been there? You're a radical, man. What are you? Jesus. Here, they kill him because they know he's the heir, not because they think he's wrongfully claiming he's the heir. There's a big difference. That is the hatred that men will go to to eradicate God from their lives. And the funny part is, is this anger and depression and anxiety that's bubbling up because they've flipped the order, I'm God or I'm on the throne of my life, he can come in, but not too much. Versus a Christian, my life's not my own. You're on the throne of my life. You're the captain. It leads to anger and hatred and bitterness. And all of a sudden, they realize, oh my goodness, he's talking about us. And they go, and they heard it, and they said, certainly not. What got him? Well, he's going to come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. What's he talking about? Well, on a near fulfillment, what's he talking about? He came and he said, I'm going to give the gospel to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And he took it to the Jews and they rejected him. And so he moved on out, Acts and other places, and continued on to the Gentile. But don't, hold on folks, you just read Romans 11. He still has a plan for Israel. Okay, now, so he tells them and he says, well, what then is that that is written? He's talking Psalm 118 right now. <laughs> he keeps questioning them. I want you to think, he says. Then he looked at them and he said, what then is that that is written in Psalm 18, 118, 22? That's me putting that in there. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Hmm, sounds like a happy Christ, huh? I mean, 
this isn't what you watch on TV. Oh, we'll clap and just be nice and happy. He says, there's something really serious about my message. And here it is. The stone which the builders rejected, what would they do when they build a, a building? They would inspect the cornerstone because it had to have two levels of leaning upon it. So if you got the cornerstone wrong, you got everything wrong. What is Jesus doing during this week? It's the Passover season. Exodus tells us what had to happen during the Passover season. If you were the head of the family, on the 10th day of Nisan, you went out and picked the lamb. And you kept it till the 14th of Nisan, and then you know what would happen, and the blood would go over the door. But what happened from the 10th to the 14th? The lamb was inspected. (laughs) So it didn't have any spot or blemish or... Passover might not be effective, so you watched and you looked and you investigated. The cornerstone always has to be watched and, chis- and, 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 and investigated and made sure it's perfect. If it is perfect, you stick it in there and you can build around it. You serve Jesus, who in all points tempted, yet never sin. He's perfect, or perfection. He's righteous. He's our chief cornerstone, and these people would know Psalm 118 because this is the Psalms that they would sing during the Passover. Are you getting it? Jesus is being inspected during this whole week, everything we're reading during the Passover. And it's interesting, he's not just sitting there in a passive way. He's, (laughs) maybe I shouldn't say this, but he's, the interview, you know, he's like taking charge of the interview here. The, interview thinks, the interviewer thinks they're interviewing him, but the interviewee is doing the interviewing. <laughs> you're inspecting me, and you're going to find me perfect. In fact, I'm the chief cornerstone. The builders rejected it even though I was perfect. Whew. The builders rejected that, or me, even though I was perfect. I was the one sent to do this. Whoever falls on that stone, what stone? Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on Jesus shall be broken or will be broken. You say, wait a minute, doesn't sound too cool. But listen, how do you come to Jesus? God gives grace to the, say it, humble, but opposes the, you know what? You come broken to the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you recognize today, right now, that you're spiritually bankrupt without Jesus? Do I recognize that? Or do I say to myself, well, I'm the pastor, and people look at me, and da-da-da. So I want you to think that I have some merit. Or do I say, oh my goodness, I have nothing without the Lord. I'm spiritually poor. See, that's what that is. Don't you want to be broken before the stone. (laughs) But here's what you don't want to be. You don't want to be crushed to powder. And that's what I'm, I think that's what we're saying here is that Jesus leaves you no room. Come humbly to me. Oh, you'll receive my life and my strength and my stability because you'll be forgiven and you can build around that. But if you don't, all things will be crushed. 
You might go through life and you'd be really rich or really handsome or really pretty or really popular. But in the things that matter, when you're counting on your righteousness, when you come face to face with God, it all dis- disintegrates and goes to powder. It's nothing before the Lord. It has no eternal value. Well, the chief priests and the scribes, the very hour, sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew they'd speak in this parable against him. So they watched him and set spies who pretended, spies, can you believe this? Spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power, look at this, and authority of the governor. They're counting on this authority. We count on that authority. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? By the way, rabbit trail. You get mad at me if you want. I don't care. We got groups of Christians that devote their whole life to whether they should pay taxes or not. And it's like, what are you doing? You're you're spending your whole life trying to convince a group of people whether to pay taxes. When Jesus said, hey, anybody got a penny? They give him a penny. He looks at it, and he says, well, who's on here? And they say, Caesar. And they say, oh, he doesn't say this, but oh, you're participating in the life that's governed by Caesar? Okay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. You see how Jesus doesn't really care? I mean, he does, but he doesn't. He's got bigger things. To get yourself embroiled on whether to pay taxes or not, or whether to do this or not, and it's not on mission than the gospel, please stay away from that. Stay on mission. If it's your conviction to challenge the Constitution and not pay taxes, okay, I guess. But don't put it on all of us. Because this story is so important. He said to them, you you render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. But they couldn't catch him in these words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer. Why? Because he's saying, (laughs) and he's saying to you, What's your image that's stamped on you? Oh, you're made in the image and likeness of God? Here, here's what to do then. Submit yourself to the authority of God through me. Give your whole life back to me. That's what he's saying right there. The best and safest place to be is to give your whole life back to God through Jesus Christ. Your whole life. When one truth's given to you, you obey that truth and the Lord propels you on to the next. Isn't that wonderful? Then some of the Sadducees, a different group. Did you notice this? He's going from group to group. Sadducees, what do they believe? Believe in only the first five books of the Bible. They don't believe in the oral traditions that were then put down in books. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible. They're the religious elite. They're really rich. They're not the plain blue-collar folks like the Pharisees were. They're the elites. They're a little bit more liberal. And one of the things we know from Acts is they don't believe in the supernatural. Sadducees don't. They don't believe in the supernatural. So guess what they ask him in a disingenuous way? They go like this. So the Sadducees, who, by the way, deny that there's a resurrection because resurrection's supernatural... 
They come to him and say, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife, raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as a wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her in like manner, seventh also, and they left no children and died. Verse 32. Last of all the women died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as his wife. Now listen, folks, this is in the Bible. <laughs> this is in Deuteronomy 25. It's called the law of Leverite marriage. It's lev, lever is a word in the Latin that means brother-in-law. If a brother's or a brother died, the other brother would step up and they'd have kids, and that would become the heir of the first brother, so that his name would live on. You can see it in Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar, but that's for another day. See, this is a completely disingenuous question because they don't believe in the resurrection and they ask him, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't care about the answer. They want to trip him up. And Jesus answered and said, how about this one? The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. Somebody underline that. When you become a Christian, you're raised to life, and you'll never die. You might go away in the tent, but you're still alive. That's important. And at some point, we can talk about this again on another day, you're going to see, receive a glorified, resurrected body. I believe for those who die before Christ comes before the rapture, we're all going to get our new glorified, resurrected body at the rapture. We'll talk about that on another day. Those, there's something different about heaven, though. We don't marry. We're not given to marriage. Do you think Jan and I won't know each other in heaven? Of course not. Of course we're going to know each other in heaven. Do you think we'll be uh, dumber in heaven than we are on earth? No way. Are we dumb for doing this? <laughs> no, we're not. We're going to know each other. We're going to know each other. What's one of the purposes for marriage? Godly children, Malachi says. What's going to happen in heaven? There'll be no more death. There's no going to be no more need to procreate. Are we not going to love each other? Of course we're going to love each other. Are we going to know each other? Of course we're going to know each other. But we're going to be so preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping and loving him, that this stuff sort of goes away. But we're going to know each other. Don't say, oh, we're still going to know each other and love one another. See it? That's, that's how great Jesus is. Because you won't be sad about it. You're going to be happy that she's worshiping the Lord and I'm worshiping the Lord. You're going to be happy and you're going to be content and there's going to be no more crying, no more pain. No, they'll exist. Remember the rich man described in the afterlife family relationships? Of course you're going to know who you were married to and all that sort of thing. Well, what else? Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. We're sons of God, sons and daughters of God. Wow. You're in the family of God. Did you have a terrible mom or a dad? 
<laughs> Be quiet over there. <laughs> did, you, did you have a great mom and dad? Did you have a terrible mom and dad? See, here you're going to be the son of God or the daughter of God. You're in the family of God. You're sons of the resurrection. You're going to receive a glorified resurrected body. But hey, here's what he says. But since you're so into the first five books of the Bible, Sadducees, why don't you turn, you don't have to do this, but why don't you turn back to the Old Testament about the story of the burning bush? That's what he's saying here. Even Moses showed in the burning bush passage, isn't it funny that he said passage? I just find that funny. Jesus knew the Old Testament. That, he, that the dead are raised because when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although they had died physically, by the time this story comes around, Moses calls God the God of these people who are living, not the people of dead. You see it? See, this is why we should be jumping up and down. Because Christianity's all about life. When we have a person here in the fellowship go away, yes, we're sad. We cry. It's sad. We love them. We miss them. But we don't grieve without, somebody, or without hope. We know where they are. They're in the loving arms of Christ. We know it because he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Then some of the scribes answered him, verse 39, and said, Teacher, you've spoken well, but after that they, dared not, they didn't want to question him anymore. He's like, they're like, that's enough. You've got us. But then he says, he doesn't stop. Do you see how spiritually provocative Jesus is? He provokes them in the right way to spiritual thinking. And he says, well, wait a minute, we're not done. How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself, now you, you know this, right? In 1 Samuel 7, it says that the Messiah has to come from the line of David. If you don't know 1 Samuel 7, commit it to memory. There's an everlasting covenant there's a covenant that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. So here it is, the Messiah himself says, now they say that the Christ is the son of David. Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, remember Jesus is saying this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. In other words, if the Messiah is David's Lord, how can the Messiah still be David's son? Did you catch that? If the Messiah is David's Lord, by the way, it says the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to the Messiah. If the Messiah is David's Lord, how can he be David's son? How can the Messiah be David's son? There's only one answer, folks. He's divine. He's always existed. He's not just man. He's fully man. He's fully God. That's what they're saying here. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? That's it. He's not only the son of David, he's the son of God. You catch it? Think that through. It's predicted in the prophecies that the Messiah would be man and God. You get it? Fully man, fully God. Okay. 
Hold on here. So then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. Love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best place at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Man, in one, it's the biggest joy to be a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But James tells us that those who teach are under a different standard. And here Jesus says, if you mislead people because of your own self-righteousness and you don't speak of my grace, what I've accomplished, there's a place reserved in hell for you. In other words, are you going to stick to the authority of posers and fakers or you want the real thing? He says it way nicer than me. Or maybe he doesn't. <laughs> okay, now why does it matter as we close this out? Why does it matter? Well, think about this. Jesus, in Hebrews 12, maybe go over there. Oh. Sorry. Hebrews 12. Go there. I'm getting there. Sorry. Hebrews 12, too. I want you to see this. I wonder if you ever thought of this word this way as we close. Why does this matter? Why is this so striking? Why do we want to put ourselves under the authority of Christ? Ready for this? Therefore, verse 1, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Don't you want to run for all it's worth your whole life for the Lord? Okay, then set aside the weight that it hinders you. What is it that hinders you? Unforgiveness? Gossip? What is it? Looking at your phones and dirty magazines? What? So in, put that aside, but then do this. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, wait a minute. Author. Authority. Yeah, Jesus writes our story, but he writes it because he's the only one who deserves to write our story. He's the only one we can trust ourselves to commit our lives to because of all that he's accomplished. So he is the authority in our lives. So he, we let him write our story. He won't come and make you do it. Oh, wait a minute. We're not done. How about Hebrews 2? Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, verse 10, Hebrews 2, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing, isn't this beautiful, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Listen, it's fitting then that we would make him the captain of our salvation. In other words, he's, we're in his army and he's our captain. Who here has been in the army? Who here has been in the police? Do you, what do you say to the captain? You go, yes, sir. Oh, wait a minute, but we're not done. Let's go one other place. Go to Colossians. 
and then we'll close. And we're going to sing this song, even though it's late, so don't give me the no sign. (laughs) Oh, man, this should touch your heart as we open up the glories of Christ to you. Here it is. Look in verse 8, chapter 2, Colossians, thanks. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 8. Hey, folks, now that you know all of this, beware. Be careful. Lest anyone cheat you through a philosophy or an empty deceit according to the tradition of men. Go right to the Scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't listen to the hierarchy, the bureaucracy, the committee members. Go to Jesus. To the basic principles of the world, don't do that. Don't listen to anything that's not according to Christ. Here it comes. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. <laughs> I don't know how much more you, you could think it or believe it. Jesus, fully man, fully God. He's full, the Godhead bodily. Here it comes. Here it comes. And if you put yourself under the authority of this one, Jesus, look at this, you're complete in him. And here's the word for complete. You're bubbling over. You're filled up to the top. That's the word in the Greek. You're filled up in the top to the top so that your your life is just bubbling over. You're like, well, why wouldn't it just stay in the cup? Because God wants it to boil bubble over so that others can come and get a drink. You're like a fountain that's flowing when you make Jesus the authority of your life. You willingly say, because you deserve it, you died for me. (laughs) You know how many things Jesus is the authority of? You've read them all in Luke. He's the creator in John, sorry, not Luke. He sustains all things by his authority. These are all by his authority. He upset Satan and the demons, Mark 1, by his authority. He's ruler over history. Just come travel with us in Job. Come travel with us in Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra. He's the ruler over history. He rules over the nations. He tells the seas where it can go and where it has to stop. He calms a cult The bucking bronco responds to Jesus. He tells the lake and the wind just to be still. He doesn't have to make a big show. Just be still. Boom, it does it. He has all of this authority, and he's telling us he he has authority over disease. You see when he heals people. He has the right to be our authority. He has the power to deliver in his authority, and it's the safest and healthiest place to be spiritually under his authority. You'll be complete. So let's pray. And we're going to sing that song. So come on up, and it's a little late. And I know the penguins are on, but you've got DVR, okay? So, Lord, thank you so much for this word, and I just ask, Lord, that you would bless this to our hearts. Help us to be overflowing as we exchange our life for yours. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can go out 
and love a hurting and dying and even a hateful world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.